All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can be together, that we have your Word to study, to reflect upon, and that it is through your Word that you speak to us, and it is only through your Word that you speak to us. And as we study your Word, we are enlightened as to the realities of life, the realities of your creation, and the realities of your grace. And Father, we need to constantly be reminded that we are to be mirrors that reflect your grace and your love and your kindness to all of the world around us. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be challenged in terms of our own application of these principles. In Christ's name, amen. One of the distinctives of the Gospel of Matthew is the emphasis on the training of the disciples, but not just the training of the disciples for the sake of learning the historical realities of that, but because this serves as a model, a pattern for what is to be repeated from generation to generation throughout the history of Christianity. Matthew, more than the other three gospel writers, emphasizes the what is, we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, that we are to go throughout the world making disciples. And so this concept of of disciple-making and being a disciple-maker and training others and just being a disciple, which means to be a committed student or follower of someone's teaching, is emphasized in Matthew. What we've seen as we have studied through Matthew is that Jesus is rejected corporately by the leadership of Israel, represented by the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, in Matthew chapter 12, as he has cast out a demon from a demon-possessed man, and they say that rather than this demonstrating his qualifications as the Messiah, he is actually doing this in the power of Beelzebul, a term of derision that was used to refer by them to Satan. Following that, Jesus began to focus upon the training of his disciples. He began to teach them in Matthew 13 about the fact that now that the kingdom had been rejected, the kingdom offered been rejected, the kingdom would be postponed, and there would be an intervening age. And what the characteristics of that intervening age would be, that there would be those who uh, have various responses to the gospel, uh, the most uh, Effective response was those that would bear fruit, but there would also be the activity of the enemy, the activity of Satan who would come in and sow a different seed than the gospel seed, and that these tares, this false wheat by the analogy, would grow up amidst the wheat, and it would not be removed until until the second coming when the there would be a, then God would separate between 
the wheat and the tares. As we got moved from chapter 13 to chapter 14, we saw that Jesus is training the disciples in terms of how he is going to provide for them, that he is going to provide what they need. He is going to sustain them. Uh, he is going to provide everything for them. Is illustrated by the feeding of the 5,000 as, as he used the disciples immediately to, as they passed out the bread and the fish to the 5,000 men and many more. There were probably 15,000, 20,000 people there that were fed. Jesus is teaching that he's the source of spiritual nourishment and that those, the disciples and the leaders of the church that would follow from generation to generation were to be depended upon him for the provision, the sustenance, the nourishment of the church, and we were to be intermediaries. As we look at the history of Christianity, we see that one of the characteristics that distinguishes Christianity down through the generations is the men and the women who have gone out to difficult situations and circumstance to minister to those on the margins, those who are at the edge of civilization, those who are within the empire who are on the margins of civilization, and they have ministered to the marginalized They have sacrificed their own comfort and their own privilege and their own positions in order to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. They have gone to take the love of God and to demonstrate the love of God to those who are unloved and rejected, to the outcasts, to the unwanted. They have taken the gospel to minister to the unloved and the unlovely, to those who the world condemned as worthless. In Rome, we know in the early church that Christians would go out and they would find the abandoned daughters that uh, Romans would take out. They didn't want their child, so they would just leave them in the street to die. And the Christians would take these abandoned children and take them into their homes and rear them and provide for them to feed them. They would take in the sick. They would minister to the slaves. Uh, They would provide for the poor all for the sake of demonstrating the love of God to a lost and dying world. Christians consistently took the gospel to the slaves, to the poor, to the lepers, and in the course of time, it was the influence of Christians who took the heritage from their from the Judeo-Christian heritage, from the Old Testament background, because Jews were among the first to have hospitals, but Christians took it to a new level, developing hospitals and orphanages and charities to provide for the poor. We have examples in the in recent centuries of people like George Mueller, who founded an orphanage in Bristol, England, to take care of these children that were just. Uh, outcasts. They were homeless. They were on the streets, and he would bring them in, feed them, clothe them, uh, teach them the scriptures, give them the gospel, and bring them to eternal life. We have the examples of William Booth and his wife Catherine, who founded the Salvation Army in the mid-19th century in order to uh, reach the poor and the homeless of England with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have examples of missionaries like Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd who went to China uh, to reach at the lowest levels of society in China to take them the gospel 
and to emulate for them the love of God as demonstrated through Jesus Christ. C.T. Studd went on from China to go to India and later to Africa that despite the fact that doctor after doctor told him that he was about to die, that he did not have the health to go to Africa, he trusted the Lord, went to Africa, and had a, a significant ministry uh, taking the gospel to those who were lost, the the the, uh, the uh, various tribes who had never before even seen a white man. And God gave him an additional 18 years, despite the fact that he fought with heart problems and other health problems day in and day out. His comfort was irrelevant. The only thing that was significant was taking the gospel to those who desperately needed it. One example we have in our own history, I thought I would bring up in light of the current controversy over the Confederate flag, was Thomas Jonathan Jackson. Thomas Jonathan Jackson later became known as Stonewall Jackson and was a noted uh, general strategist and tactician in the Confederate Army. His uh, uh, escapades on the battlefield are still studied in military academies around the world, But one little-known truth is that he was a committed Christian. He had a heart for the lost. And even though he was a slave owner, he conducted a Sunday school for his slaves in conflict, in disobedience to Virginia law, which said that you could not teach slaves to read. He taught his slaves to read so that they could read their Bible. And every Sunday afternoon, he conducted a Sunday school class because of his commitment to make sure that his uh, his slaves and other slaves in his area would hear the gospel and receive the free gift of eternal life uh, based on Christ's death on the cross. Compassion for the lost, for those who are on the margins of society, for those who are unlovely, has distinguished Christianity from all other religions throughout its history. And it's particularly noteworthy that this contrasts with the environment in which Christianity was born. It is an outgrowth of biblical Judaism, but it was shaped in the crucible of the conflict with Pharisaical, uh, excuse me, Pharisaical religion, Pharisaical Judaism, at the time of Christ. The Pharisees rejected. Uh, Gentiles. They wouldn't talk to women. They wouldn't enter into a Gentile's home for anything. They wouldn't eat their food. The legalism of the Pharisees had hardened them to the needs of the lost and those who were uh, unloved and those who were at the uh, in the dregs of society. They had completely lost any concept of the grace of God, but. So this is the essence of what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this episode in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28, an episode that is recorded in only one other gospel, the gospel of Mark. And it emphasizes to his disciples that they are to take the gospel, to demonstrate the grace and the mercy and the love of God to those who are unloved and unlovable, those who are marginalized, and those who are the outcasts. It is a demonstration of God's love, as we've seen in 
John 3.16, and often we miss the next verse, which is a great verse. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his unique son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But the next verse goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The first coming of Jesus Christ focused upon grace to the lost, to those who were desperately in need of salvation, those who uh, were on a one-way trip to the lake of fire like every human being, and it was a demonstration of Christ that by uh, by viewing him, by looking upon him, you could see the character, the attributes of God the Father. And so... We learn this. Jesus is teaching this to his disciples at this particular time. So in John, or excuse me, Matthew 15, 21, we read, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Mark adds to this a little bit. He says, From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Now, a couple of things that we ought to note here is that it tells us that Jesus went out from there. Uh, the, the from there is really talking about his ministry that we've seen at the end of chapter 14, where he was ministering in the area of uh, 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 Gennesar, in the region of Gennesar, the area where he lived in Capernaum, which is just about five miles uh, north up the coast of the Sea of Galilee from, from Gennesar. And so he leaves there and he goes to uh, this area of Tyre and Sidon. We'll look at that in just a minute. But there's a couple of words here that we need to focus on because they're significant in relation to the event itself that we we're witnessing here, which is the the deliverance, the casting out of a demon from this woman's uh, daughter. And so we see two of these important words at the very beginning here in a normal everyday usage and everyday context, which in word study helps us to understand what the word means when we transfer it to a specific kind of situation like demon possession. Jesus went out is the Greek word ex erkomai. Ex erkomai means to be some in somewhere and to leave it, to go out from there. And then we're told in the Mark passage that when he arrived in Tyre, he entered a house. This is a similar word, same root, ace erkomai, and it means to go into some place. Now, I put both of these Greek words up on the screen, and I underlined the root word, which is erkomai, which means simply to come or to go. That prefix at the beginning is a preposition. Ek means to come out. So ek erkomai means that you're in some place and you go outside. Ace erkomai means to go into a place, to enter into a place. And so we see that this basically says Jesus is in one location. He is in the Galilee. He goes out of the Galilee and he goes into the territory of Tyre and Sidon, and he goes into a house, from outside into a house. Now, this is going to be important because these are the most technical, the most detailed, specific words 
that we find in demon possession passages, and it tells us what demon possession is, that a demon enters into a person, and when they are delivered or healed, the demon comes out of the person. There, there's demon influence, which is the influence of demons from outside of a person. This is usually mediated through the world system around us, the culture around us. But demon possession is when a demon, an evil spirit, enters into the body of a person and takes control of their bodily functions. And we have situations in the scripture where uh, children are thrown into fire, uh, people are blind or they are deaf or they're unable to speak. These physiological symptoms sometimes relate to the control of a demon. So these words are important. We'll come back to that before we finish. This is a map showing us the location. Jesus is down here where this red dot is located in Capernaum. He had crossed over into this area of uh, Bethsa- near Bethsaida where he had fed the 5,000. He left to walk back to Capernaum to spend some time alone, but the disciples got on their boat and they tried to make their headway. Remember, across the lake encountered a storm, and at night they were not making any distance at all, and Jesus came walking to them in the wee hours, the early hours of the day, somewhere between 3 and 6, probably right around dawn, where they could see him. We have the episode with Peter walking on the water, and then they got back into the boat and came to Gennesar, located right about here. Then there's this the episode of the, the uh, healing. Many who came to him and were healed, uh, demons were cast out. And then there's a confrontation again, the first part of chapter 15, with the Pharisees. And so then he left there, and because the situation is getting a little intense for him, and he goes out of the Jewish territory, and he goes to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is uh, important to understand this as he goes to this region as to why this is significant. These were the two most prominent cities on the Mediterranean, on the Mediterranean coast of what is now called Lebanon. In the ancient world, this was known as Phoenicia. And these two cities had a, a terrible history in terms of the fact that they were the centers of the false religion of the worship of Baal and the Ashtaroth. The the worship of Baal involves some of the most horrible things that we can imagine and some of the most horrific things that have ever been done in the name of religion. They practiced cultic prostitution. They were part of the what was known in the ancient world as the fertility cult, where in order to somehow motivate the gods and goddesses to give uh, the agricultural areas productivity, um, men would go to the temple and have sexual intercourse with uh, the temple prostitutes in order to uh, emulate the concept of fertilization and to encourage the gods to fertilize the fields, to bring rain and, and sunshine so that they would be productive. It was the early form of the modern Christian heresy of the health and wealth gospel. Uh, but not only did they practice this kind of sexual immorality in the name of, of religion, but they also would sacrifice their infants uh, in, in, in the fires of, of, of the gods in order to placate the wrath of the gods. So this was some of the most horrible uh, religious activity in the ancient world. 
and Tyre and Sidon represented all of these evils. If anyone in Israel heard of reference to Tyre and Sidon, then they would instantly think of this. Tyre was mentioned over 50 times in the Bible, usually in contexts of judgment. Four entire chapters are given over to God's judgment on Tyre, and in one chapter, Satan is represented as the king of Tyre. Tyre represented the most notoriously evil religions of the ancient world. In the eyes of a Jew, no rabbi would ever take his students there. There's nothing good there, and of course, the inhabitants are all Gentiles. And so just going there would make you ritually unclean. And so going to a place like this would uh, cause great conflict as well with the Pharisees who would just uh, just reject the whole notion that Jesus could be from God if he would go to such a place as Tyre and Sidon. Furthermore, as a rabbi, you would never talk to a woman. Talking to a woman would, would, would not be allowed. Rabbis would go out of their way to avoid having any kind of social intercourse uh, with a woman, much less a Gentile woman. And that was, of course, seen as well in the episode where Jesus stopped at the well in, in Samaria outside of, outside of modern Nablus or ancient Sychar near ancient Shechem, and he talked to the woman at the well. This was unheard of in, in uh, Jewish culture at that particular time. And so we see that Jesus honors women. He has a reverence for women. Uh, he talked to the Samaritan woman. He talks or he ministers to this particular woman who is mentioned in the next verse. So in Matthew fifteen twenty two we read, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to note about this, and the first is what I've highlighted there in blue, is that the Greek word there translated behold, in our, in our idiom we would say pay attention. Now, when we look at the parallel in Mark, Mark just introduces this as an, with an explanatory clause, but we see that Matthew is making a real point here in relating this episode. He says, now pay attention to this. A woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him. So Matthew calls her a woman of Canaan, a Canaanite woman, whereas Mark simply refers to her as the, the woman is Greek. Some translations say Greek. The original says Elenes, which would mean Greek literally, but often that was just used by Jews to describe Gentiles. She is specifically said not uh, said to be a Syrophoenician woman. Again, that locates her within this history, this horrible history of the evil religions of the Syrophoenician uh, area. And um, but but Matthew specifically calls her a woman of Canaan, and this is a term that would be quite pejorative. It would almost rank on level with using a racial epithet today. We've, under political correctness, we've made any kind of uh, racial uh, identification as slang. We used to call the Brits the limeys and the French the frogs and various other terms that we would use. We'd call the Germans the krauts and the Japs the nips and things like that. 
And that was all socially acceptable back in the 30s and the 40s. But now, if you use terminology like that, it's considered a, an egregious sin. I think that's part of Satan's ploy to attack Christianity because if you buy into political correct values, then you look at language like we find in this particular episode and you think that, well, Jesus would have to be a sinner. Look at what he ca- He calls this woman a dog. He's not calling her a bitch. He's calling her a dog. And he is referring to, and Matthew's referring to uh, this woman as a Canaanite, which, which would really be a pejorative, uh, a pejorative term in, in that particular culture because it would bring to the mind of all of the Jews all of the horrible influence that the Canaanite religion had had in destroying the spirituality of Israel. They had compromised with the Canaanite religions. And uh, the, the worship of Baal and Asheroth was clearly part of that. The Israelites had pushed the Canaanites out of the Promised Land. They pushed them up north. And then their influence returned from the north, especially under Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, who was a king of Israel in the north. And when, a- when uh, Jezebel married Ahab, she brought with her uh, hundreds of the priests of Baal and the Asheroth, uh, into the northern kingdom. That became the official religion, religion, and they began to persecute those who were worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was the whole episode in the conflict between Elijah and the priests of Baal, as we see in 1 Kings uh, chapter 15. We're told in Numbers 13.29 that the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea as well as by the banks of the Jordan. So the Canaanites dwelt north and northwest in the area of, of Phoenicia. But this woman is different. There's something distinct about her because when she approaches Jesus, she doesn't... Talk to him as if he's just another religious leader. She calls upon him as the son of David. She's got some some biblical understanding. She recognizes who he is as the Messiah. Uh, This term, the son of David, is used nine times by Matthew to refer to Jesus. It is a messianic title. It is first used in... Matthew 1, one that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in Matthew 9.27, we saw the two blind men who approached Jesus and cried out, Son of David, have mercy on us. We'll see two more blind men from Jericho approach him in a couple of more chapters, calling upon him to uh, restore their sight and again addressing him as the son of David. And then in Matthew 12, 23, after Jesus had cast the demon out of the demon-possessed man before the Pharisees accused him of doing it by the power of Beelzebul, the crowd said, couldn't this be the son of David? And they say, no, not at all. He did this in the power of Beelzebul. So this title, the son of David, is a title that represents his, his deity. Now, there are six titles of Jesus' sonship used in the... Uh, in the Gospels, I'm going to put them up here on the screen, and we are reminded that in Hebrew idiom, son of can refer to somebody's parents, literally, they're the son of, uh, Jesus was called the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, that refers to his, 
his uh, uh, literal parents, but it also indicates characteristics. For example, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, they refer to the sons of Eli. We've been studying this in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The sons of Eli were called the sons of Belial. That's usually translated as they were corrupt. That's what the idiom meant, but they're called the sons of Belial. They represent the characteristics of Satan of Belial. Belial was another term of derision used to refer to uh, to, to Satan. Someone who is foolish would be called the son of a fool. Someone who's a murderer would be called the son of a murderer. Those usually aren't translated that way in the Old Testament. They're usually translated in terms of their sense. So you'll see somebody is called a murderer, but in the Hebrew it says they're, they're called the son of a murderer. So when Jesus is called the son of God, that emphasizes his deity, not, not that he was uh, born for, by God, but that he is fully God. Son of Adam would refer to his lineage. He is fully human. He is a direct descendant of Adam, as indicated in the genealogy of of Luke. He's called the son of Abraham because he is a descendant of Abraham, indicating that he's fully Jewish. He's called the son of David, a messianic title. He's a descendant of David, but it's emphasizing that he is the Davidic king and the Messiah. Son of man emphasizes his true humanity. And son of Mary indicates that he is the descendant of uh, the, the son of Mary, who he was born of the Virgin Mary. The Canaanite woman calls upon Jesus as a son of David to have mercy upon her. She here's this Gentile woman. She's unclean, and she approaches Jesus. And I mean, she's an unclean pagan, uh, representing this whole uh, area of, of uh, demonic religion. And yet she recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah and she calls upon him to have mercy upon her. Why? Because her daughter is severely demon-possessed. If you note in the parallel, uh, in the next, in the Mark passage, it says that her daughter had an unclean spirit. Uh, these are two different terms that are used to describe uh, demon possession. In this slide, I put them on the board. The first word, to be demon-possessed, represents a present passive participle, daimonizomai in the Greek. And this is where a lot of conflict develops because it's not a specific word. It's not a, a technically specific word. It simply means to be acted upon by a demon. But in what way? Today, there's a lot of controversy over this. If you want to find out more details, you can look at my book on spiritual warfare. But this word, though it's general, and it could refer to demon influence, it doesn't because in every case that it's used, it's always qualified by other more specific terminology. Uh, Here we see that it is also related to the phrase to have a demon. There's something more personal and more specific about that phrase. That's the phrase that Mark uses down here. And we see that it's only used a couple of times in Matthew, in Matthew 10.1 and 12.43. But it's used in numerous passages in Mark as well as in Luke. That is their preferred term to use for demon possession. Mark 123, 126, 127-311, 335-2, 8-13, 6-7-7-25, 9-25, means to have a demon. But how do you get rid of the demon, and how did you get a demon? That's what's important to understand. And what is clear 
And the next couple of verses is, especially in the parallel in Mark 7, 25 and 26, the woman understands the correct procedure. She says that she kept asking Jesus in Mark 7:26, and this indicates that she didn't ask him once or twice. She keeps talking to him, and at first he doesn't pay any attention to her, which seems rather rude, and I'll address that in a minute. And she keeps asking him to cast the demon out. It's the Greek word ekbalo, and there's that preposition ek again. We saw it with ex erkomai to cast to to come out. Ekbalo means to cast out. So that means it must be in something in order for it to come out of something. It's not the word, the Greek word exorkizo, where we get our word exorcism. Never refer to what happens in the Bible as an exorcism. The word is used in the Bible, but it is only used of the practices of pagan practitioners in their attempt to cast out demons. It's used of one Jewish exorcist in Acts, but it is never used of what Jesus and the disciples do. They cast out demons, only the pagans try to exorcise a demon. So exorcism is not a biblically correct activity for Christians. It is uh, in fact, it's not even an issue for Christians today, but in the Bible, only Jesus and the disciples and one or two assistants of the disciples cast out demons. So we're told in Matthew 15:23 that Jesus doesn't answer her. It seems rather rude, but there is a reason for that. Jesus doesn't answer her, and his disciples also show a certain measure of being uh, somewhat callous of her, and they just think she's an irritant. She keeps asking for Jesus to uh, cast the demon out of her daughter, and this is irritating the disciples. It's, uh, they're, they're, they come to Jesus, and they say, well, just send her away. She keeps crying out after us, and she's becoming a nuisance. She's annoying us. And we need to uh, we need to get rid of her. The word urge there uh, is in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means this is something they were continuously doing. She continued to uh, ask Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter, and they continued to urge Jesus to get rid of her. And he gives an answer that is very interesting. He's not answering her, but he's answering them as they say this. And he makes the point. He says, I was not sent to the, except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's really not answering because he's setting up the situation. He's giving her an opportunity to expose what she knows. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because he's giving us the opportunity to further trust him and to demonstrate what we know. Rather than giving us an easy out, he's giving us an opportunity to trust him and to think more deeply about uh, about Scripture. Jesus is emphasizing the fact that as the Son of David, as the Messiah, he was sent to the house of Israel, not to the Gentiles, just as he initially sent the disciples out, only to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's emphasizing this is his mission as the Son of David. She should know this. If she's calling him the Son of David, she should recognize that his mission as the Messiah is first and foremost to the Jews in fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, covenants and other passages. For example, in Jeremiah 31.10, uh, 
Jeremiah says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, that is the Gentiles, and declare to the isles far off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. It is the role of the Messiah to be specifically focused on Israel as Israel's shepherd. This is also seen in Isaiah 40:11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This is talking about the role of the Messiah toward his people Israel. Now, Jesus uses this same imagery in John chapter 10, but there he also talks about the fact that he has sheep that his disciples do not know of. He has sheep of another flock, and that's a reference to the Gentiles. In Hosea 2.23, a passage is quoted by Paul to refer to Gentile conversion. Uh, Hosea says, then I will, God speaking, and says, then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. Paul applies that to the Gentiles. And they shall say, you are my God. God has always had a plan for the Gentiles. From the moment he called Abraham, he said it was through Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. And so he is... Setting up, a, uh, uh, setting up the scenario here that there is a proper order of events to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. And in Matthew 15, 25, then we read that she came and worshipped him. That means she bowed down and she's submitting to his authority, recognizing him as the sovereign God, and she says, Lord, help me. She is desperate. Can you imagine, those of you who are mothers, to have a child that is tormented day in and day out by a demon, possessed by a demon? Every single day, there's not a thing you can do. You feel absolutely helpless and hopeless. And then you hear that this Jewish rabbi who has been casting out demons in Israel is coming into your town. Can you imagine how she must have just run as fast as she could to find him and to throw herself at his feet to beg him to rescue her daughter who's going through this horrible time uh, of demon possession? But notice how he asks her. Now, I want you to understand this. This, on the surface, it seems like Jesus is being a little callous and and, and he's, he's uh, he's not very sensitive to her situation. But he's using this as a teaching moment related to his role to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And she begs him, Lord, help me. And he answers her and says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, what in the world is he talking about? He's just called her a dog. This is not a compliment. This doesn't come across good, but this is how the Jews referred to the Gentiles. They had this pejorative term, and they referred to them as dogs, and in most cases the dogs were just wild dogs. They weren't the household pets that we think of, but that's the word that's used here. It's a diminutive form of the word for dog, and it refers to a household pet, to a to a house dog, the one that lived in the house, possibly even to a, a puppy. And he says, it's not good to take the children's bread. The children are Israel. The bread is the revelation of God. It's Jesus the Messiah who's the bread of life. 
And he says it's not good to take the children's bread, that is referring to himself as the bread of life, and throw it to the little dogs, to the, to the Gentiles. But listen to her response. See, he sets her up so that she can reveal the doctrine that's in her soul and her understanding, her proper understanding of the role and dynamic that's going on here. She says, yes, Lord, but even the puppies, even the little dogs, eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She's appealing to his grace. She says, yes, I understand that your primary mission is to the Jews, and your primary mission is as the son of David, as their Messiah, but you have a plan and a purpose for Gentiles also, and the Jews come first, but the Gentiles come second. It's not that they're ignored and irrelevant, is that they just have to be in the things just have to be in the proper order, and it is the Jew first and then the Gentiles, and we get the overflow of your grace after it's given to the Gentiles. And so Jesus responds in verse twenty seven and says uh, in Mark 7:27, we read, But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. So Jesus is emphasizing the proper order, the proper procedure in terms of the gospel. And then we come to Matthew 15:28. Then Jesus answered and said to her, A woman, great is your faith. She praised him. She, he's not just ignoring her because he's calloused or he's not sensitive but because he's trying to give her the opportunity to demonstrate her maturity, to demonstrate what she knows about the word in her soul, and to let that answer come out so that this will be a viable teaching moment for his disciples. And then he praises her and says, Woman, great is your faith. You have understood a principle that my disciples are ignorant of. That the Jews are ignorant of. Most of the believers are ignorant. You have demonstrated this, and so he praises her for his faith, and then he says, let it be to you as you desire. And we read, her daughter was healed from that hour. So without going to to her home or any reason, he heals her, casts out the demon. Now Mark gives us a more specific, he says, for this saying, go your way, Jesus said, the demon has gone out of your daughter. That's this word on the left, ex erkomai. As Jesus went out of Capernaum, uh, the demon comes out of the woman, uh, of the daughter. And then we're told when she had come to her house, she found that the demon, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying in the bed. Now, what we should note about both of these Greek verbs is they're both in the perfect tense, which means when Jesus said that the demon has gone out, it's already a completed action. He's not saying the demon is now going out. He's saying the demon has already left. It's a completed past action with consequences that will go on uh, forever. We're emphasizing the fact that it's completed. I've already cast the demon out, and she has been delivered. But for understanding demon possession, this little diagram, ace erkomai means to go into. The preposition ace means toward or into, and that would be to go inside of something. And so the demon goes into a person. Ex erkomai means it goes out of the person, and the verb that describes that action is ex erkomai. Just a couple of examples. We know I know it's warm and we're all a little a little warm, especially me. Uh just everyday uses of ace erkomai after um, 
Joseph is told that he can come back to Israel with, with Mary and the baby. He came into the land of Israel. He came out of Egypt and went into the land of Israel. Matthew 6, 6, Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room. It means to go inside of something. Uh, Matthew 8, 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, he was outside and he went into. So that establishes what this means. Now, when we look at passages related to demon possession, for example, Matthew 12, 45, uh, and it's parallel, Luke eleven twenty six talks about the demons, then they enter and dwell there. Uh, in both places uses that. That's what demon possession is when the demon goes inside. In Mark 12, uh, Mark 5, 12, and 13, when Jesus casts the demons out of uh, the demoniac who has the legion of demons, uh, the demons say, send us to the swine that we may enter into them. Ace Erkamai. And in Mark 5.13, it says, Then the unclean spirits went out, ex Erkamai, and entered the swine. Luke says, basic, uses the same terminology. The many demons had entered into him, ace Erkamai. They entered, uh, they entered then, he permitted them to enter into the pigs, uh, into the swine. And verse 833, the demons went out of the man and then entered the swine. So it becomes very clear that this terminology is, pay attention, don't get distracted by the heat right now. It's very obvious that this term, to go into and go out of acercomai and exercomai, is technical language to help us understand the mechanics of demon possession. That's important because... If you mess up those words, you really mess up your whole understanding of demonology and Satanology and the angelic conflict. And in John 13, 27, we're told that Satan entered into Judas. That's the same term. Now, there are some people who say that Judas was a believer and that this isn't demon possession. You may have heard that. A person who believes that should be flunked on Greek 101. Because that kind of exegesis just leads to really sloppy theology. If the word everywhere else is a technical term for demon possession, then it has to be a technical term for demon possession right here in John thirteen twenty seven. Otherwise, you really mess things up. Judas wasn't a believer. Judas was indwelt by Satan. Believers can't be uh, possessed by Satan because... We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that word temple is a technical term. It's the naos, the inner holy of holies. It's not the heros. Anybody could go into the heros, the broad temple precinct. But only, only someone who is sanctified by God could go into the holy of holies. And that tells us that no Christian can be demon-possessed. Now, what this episode reminds us of is the fact that we, as disciples, are to take the gospel to everyone. Too often we find Christians who say, well, you know, they're not in the right social category. They're, they're dirty. They're calloused. They're homeless. They're, they've rejected everything. They stink. You know, and once they clean themselves up a little bit and get a job, then I'll take the gospel to them, but not right now. But this isn't the history of Christianity, and it doesn't reflect the grace, love of God. Jesus was training the disciples and teaching us that we are to look at the world through the eyes of God, that no one deserves the gospel, but we are sent on the basis of God's love and mercy to give to the undeserving the grace of God and help them understand the gospel. 
Jesus is teaching the disciples and us that we are to love the unlovely. We are to minister to those who are on the margins of society. We are to take the gospel to everyone without distinction, to every single human being, because every human being, no matter what their social status, no matter how they smell, no matter how they dress, no matter how badly or how great they're educated, every human being is in the image of God and needs to hear the gospel with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this passage this morning, to be reminded of your grace, that Jesus died for all without exception and without distinction. He died for every single human being. He was the perfect substitute for all sin. And as he, as he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for every single human being. And that is the message that we take. And that is the greatest expression of our compassion. But often we need to, uh, we need to accompany that with uh, other ministries to take care of other problems, financial problems, health problems, the need for food and shelter and clothing. This has been demonstrated throughout the ages by Christians involved in taking the gospel to people in great need. Father, we pray that anyone listening today would, that has never trusted in Christ as Savior would take this opportunity to do so. If you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, at that instant you receive the perfect righteousness of Christ, you're declared justified, and you're given the gift of eternal life which can never be taken from you. In that instant, just by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, you have eternal life. You will become a new creature in Christ with a new life in him. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've learned today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.